I'm just delighted to be here again today with Dr. Mark Solms and Dr. Michael Levin. Thank you both for being here. Um, I did an extensive uh, introduction to both of you on the previous conversation, so I'm going to put that in the show notes and we can save that time today for a conversation. Um, in our last talk together at the end, uh, Dr. Solms mentioned that he was going to talk about his new project of artificial consciousness, mm -hmm. and I know that was something that that Dr. Levin was very interested in. <clears throat> and from now on, I'm gonna call you Mark and Mike <laughs> so that I don't get myself confused. Um, so um, a couple of things, um, Mark, I noticed that you had mentioned in, uh, in the previous episode that affect is what you see as the fundamental aspect of consciousness. And you also mentioned in your book that unless it is possible to make a conscious machine we will not have solved the hard problem of consciousness. So I know that's part of what you're working on. And then Mike, you had mentioned that, that um, you're looking at this new um, recasting of physics to, to perhaps see cognitive systems as a specific kind of predictive interaction with the outside world. So I thought we might kind of explore that in the context of what Mark is going to tell us about artificial consciousness. Does that sound okay? Sure. Sounds great. Okay. Let's go with it then. Mark, why don't you start? <clears throat> thanks. Well, I'll, thanks very much, Karen. I'll start with the, the things that you just said um, that, uh, uh, that I said, uh, namely that, um, well, well, in fact, I, what I had in mind was Richard Feynman's uh, famous statement, which was found on the blackboard uh, after he died. So it's not exactly his last words, but something close to that. He said, if I can't create it, I don't understand it. Um, and I agree with that. I think that if you're going to claim to understand the causal mechanism whereby sentient whereby consciousness arises, then you should be able to engineer that mechanism. Um, that I think is the ultimate test uh, of a, a mechanistic account of consciousness. So it's uh, for that reason uh, that uh, we have, I and a, and a small team of colleagues, I better quickly mention uh, them so as to be fair, it's not me alone, um, the, the team is headed by me and Jonathan Schock, um, who's a physicist and, um, and computer scientist. Uh, and then uh, the other senior members of the team are Bruce Bassett, a physicist and computer scientist, uh, Benjamin Rossman, uh, a roboticist, um, Ryan Smith, a neuroscientist and, and computational um, uh, it's, it's sort of, I don't know what to call him, computational mental scientist. Um, and um, Charles von Hoef, uh, who's a uh, roboticist. And, and, and we've had a student, Rowan Hodson, who's been sort of at the, at the coalface doing, doing this work. So the other thing that you mentioned was that I believe that, that affect um, is the fundamental or elemental uh, foundational form of consciousness. Um, so so I, I have to start there in order to explain uh, the project that we are working on. Um, you know, the, the quest 
uh, to identify a neural correlate of consciousness um, famously associated with Francis Crick's work in the 90s with, with Christoph Koch. It focused mainly on visual consciousness and, 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 and therefore on visual cortex. This was the sort of model example. If we can identify the neural correlate of visual consciousness, um, then we will have uh, a basis for generalizing from there to other forms of consciousness. That's, that's pretty much been this, the kind of mainstream approach. I don't mean that all of the work has been uh, on vision, but um, it has all been on cortical processes um, and, and, and for the most part, perceptual processes. Uh, and, I, and I thought that's the wrong place to start. And I don't have time to go into all of the details uh, as to why I believe it's the wrong place to start. So I'll just say um, two things. The one is that cortical visual processing carries on perfectly well. I don't mean perfectly, but perfectly well. Um, in other words, adequately uh, in, 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 without consciousness. Uh, there's, there's lots of evidence uh, for uh, unconscious cortical visual processing. In other words, you don't have to be conscious in order to see. Uh, and uh, and uh, uh, the, the evidence for this is, is tachistoscopic experiments where you flash for a few milliseconds visual information, the person is not aware of having seen anything at all. Uh, and yet you can demonstrate that what they've seen alters their behavior. Um, blind sight is another example. Uh, you know, uh, but uh, for me, the most uh, telling uh, example, the most telling reason to believe that cortex is the wrong place to look is that if you study children who are born without a cerebral cortex, a condition known as hydranencephaly, uh, they're conscious without any cortex at all, without ever having had any cortex at all. Um, by which I mean they wake up in the morning and they go to sleep at night and they are responsive and reactive. Um, and, and, and in particular, they are emotionally reactive. In other words, affectively reactive. In other words, they, they, have, they show, they demonstrate, they act as if they have feelings. So that suggests um, that consciousness doesn't require a cerebral cortex. Uh, the consciousness must be generated in the brain stem, which is all these children have. Um, and uh, it's not possible that they could have visual consciousness because they don't have visual cortex or any form of perceptual consciousness or any form of higher cognitive consciousness at all. Um, the evidence suggests all they have is raw feelings. Um, now, um, th that's uh, as, as, good a, as good a starting point as any for uh, why I think that raw feeling is the most basic form of consciousness. There are all kinds of evolutionary stories you can tell as to why that also makes just common sense, you know, that the, the dawn of consciousness wouldn't be some complicated cognitive reflective self-awareness. It would just be some sort of qualitative feeling state with, with uh, survival consequences like pain or hunger uh, or, you know, or the like. So, um, so that's, that's where I started. Uh, the, the, you could even say logically, uh, you can't, you can have visual processing without visual consciousness, but you can't have feeling 
without feeling. You know, the, 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 the notion of an unconscious feeling is an oxymoron. The, the, the very meaning of the word is that, that you feel it. So if we're wanting to understand what consciousness does, you know, we should be looking at this most basic form, uh, this, this type of uh, uh, mental process, which seems to be for consciousness. It seems to require consciousness. Whatever this function is, whatever it's doing, um, it, it has to be felt. Uh, and so these are, uh, if, had I more time, there's a lot more I could say. But, you know, these are the reasons why I focused on the brainstem uh, and, and on raw affect, raw feeling. Uh, as 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 my so now going back to Feynman's um, remark, what we're wanting to do is to say, well, what then is the mechanism, the causal mechanism, uh, whereby feelings are generated in the brainstem? Uh, if we can identify that mechanism, we should be able to engineer it. That's the basis of the project that we're that that team that I named. Uh, that that's the basis of the project that we are working on. So uh, what is the mechanism of feeling? Um, it seems to be homeostatic. Uh, it, it seems to be an extended form of homeostasis. <laughs> when I said earlier, the dawn of consciousness probably involved the organism feeling something about how well or badly it's doing in relation to its survival imperatives. Um, I'm speaking about a, an extended form of homeostasis. When I say well or badly, in relation to survival imperatives, that's, that mechanism is homeostasis. Um, and incidentally, there's lots of evidence that the brainstem uh, nuclei that we are talking about do in fact function homeostatically. So the, these are not just, I'm not speaking from first principles, I'm speaking about what we know about these structures. Um, you stimulate these brainstem structures, uh, you generate intense affects. Uh, nothing of the kind happens in cortex. Uh, you image uh, people who are in intense affective states. You see that the, the arousal is in those brainstem structures. Um, and uh, the, the, in particular, I want to focus on the periaqueductal gray, uh, which seems to be the sort of great assembly point for all of these uh, homeostatic systems, all of the error signals, in other words, things going badly, um, all of the error signals converge on periaqueductal gray. So we're using the, the archi functional architecture of this part of the brain um, as the basis for the, the, the artificial consciousness that, that we are trying to develop. Uh, I, I must emphasize, uh, I don't say that we are developing because who knows whether we'll succeed or not. You know? So we are trying, it's a kind of a test of whether, whether or not uh, we're, we're anywhere like on the right track uh, in terms of the sorts of things I've just said. So um, you, I, I, I won't reference all the time our last conversation because presumably some of our listeners will not have heard our last conversation, so, but, but I know I did mention this last time. Um, not all homeostatic mechanisms are conscious. Uh, there's a hell of a lot of homeostatic regulation that goes on autonomically. Uh, of, of which we have no awareness. Blood pressure uh, regulation is a clinically notorious example. You don't know about the undershoots and overshoots in your blood pressure until it's too late. Um, but the, the example that I gave last time was uh, in response to a comment Mike made, um, uh, was that a blood gas balance 
normally uh, it's regulated autonomically, but under certain circumstances, we do become aware of how well we're doing in terms of maintaining our bad gas balance. Uh, and that is uh, under conditions of uh, uncertainty. Uh, when we find ourselves in an unpredicted situation, like for example, in a carbon dioxide filled room, um, at this point, when you suffer uh, um, air hunger uh, or, or suffocation uh, distress, uh, your need for oxygen comes very forcibly into consciousness. So that transition from an autonomic regulation uh, of your blood gases to a conscious awareness uh, of, 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 of how well you're doing in terms of your need to balance carbon dioxide and, and oxygen, uh, that transition occurs then because now the autonomic reflex is not enough. Uh, you have to do something allostatically in the outside world. And my hypothesis is that the coming into consciousness of your blood gas balance tells you how well you're doing um, in your choice making as you navigate this uncertain <clears throat> environment. Uh, if, if, you, if you move somewhere, you can't predict where the oxygen is. You've never been in a burning building before, let alone this particular one. If you happen to move by trial and error to, to where the oxygen is, you feel relief. Uh, and if you move uh, where less oxygen is, you feel more uh, respiratory distress. And so that feeling tells you how you're doing. So the basic mechanism uh, is that feeling uh, of, of increasing homeostatic error or decreasing homeostatic error. Uh, this, this, the, 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 the organism uh, being able to register uh, here and now how well it's doing uh, enables it to make choices. Choices uh, have to be rooted in a value system. Good and bad feelings tell the organism those are our value system. Uh, and, it, and, and it's on this basis that we make our choices. It's on this basis that the whole of voluntary uh, uh, action uh, is, 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 is founded. Um, so uh, let's, let me stop there and now <clears throat> summarize what the basic requirements for a, what are the basic ingredients for a, for a conscious agent, given everything I've said, because this was our strategy. We said, let's, let, us, let us try to engineer the minimal conditions for a conscious agent based on the principles that I've just outlined. Let's try and make one. Um, so the, the, the basic conditions are you need, we're not obviously creating an organism. Uh, we're creating, uh, so what are, what are the minimal, what do, what, what do we look, what, what, what is the artificial equivalent? Uh, it's a self-organizing system. It's a system uh, that is bounded. There's a, there's a boundary between the system and, and its environment. Uh, and it registers its own state uh, you can't have, uh, you can't speak of a, um, of, of the, the, the system having a point of view unless you have those, those kind of basic conditions that I've just described. We, we call it a Markov blanket. Uh, the, 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 the boundary that distinguishes between the system and the not system and the system registers its own state and registers the state of its environment via the, via the, Blanket via the bound, so it registers its own blanket states 
And that tells it something about, so there's a point of view. Now you have the, the sort of um, necessary preconditions for a self. I don't mean you have a self. I mean, you have the necessary preconditions for, th this justifies you to speak of the system's point of view. It, it just, it, it, it enables, it becomes reasonable to, to, to put yourself in the, in, uh, in the observational uh, position uh, to, uh, of the system. So how, how are things going from the system's point of view? Uh, how well or badly it's doing in terms of its survival imperatives um, matters to such a system because if it's doing badly, it's going to cease to exist. Um, if it's doing well, uh, it will continue to exist. So this is the next thing that we engineer into our system. It's a self-organizing Markov blanketed system uh, which has needs, survival needs. Um, in the version of the system that we're working on now, um, it has three needs. Uh, the one is it has energy. It needs, it needs uh, to replenish its energy resources. Uh, secondly, in doing so, it bangs into things um, uh, and it suffers damage in the process. Uh, and uh, it, 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 it's, there's a there's a, a limit to how much damage uh, is is tolerable to the system uh, before it becomes before its its its, its uh, structural integrity is 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 undermined. Uh, and thirdly, it needs rest. Um, and uh, while it rests, uh, it also um, it also um, there is a repair of the of the structural uh, damage that has occurred. Um, so these are the three needs. Uh, in order for this system to, to continue to exist, it, <clears throat> it has to meet those three needs. And that's all, that it, that's all that it's there for. It doesn't have any other purpose other than to keep going. Um, it's in a, and this is, by the way, I must emphasize at this stage in our work, uh, this is a simulated agent. In other words, it's not a robot. Uh, it's a, it's a, an agent that moves around in an artificial environment. We're developing the algorithms uh, at, at this point for, for such a system. Um, can I, and, can I uh, just clarify there for a second? <clears throat> you said it's not a robot, it's a system that moves around in an artificial environment. Are you talking about something similar to a, a more advanced cellular automaton that's just moving around in a software environment a, or? So it, it's a virtual environment. It's a large space, it's a, a grid. Uh, located in that space <clears throat> are, are, its, are its resources. In other words, in other words, places where it can rest um, and places where it can uh, obtain its energy supplies and places where it bangs into things. It knows nothing about that environment. It's just, it, it just has these three needs. Uh, and it wonders about this environment, discovering, uh, uh, inferring where it is in relation to what it needs on the basis of the consequences for these homeostatic need detectors that I mentioned earlier. So, so we will embody this, but, at the, but we've gone through many, many, many generations, um, as you can imagine, in the process of developing this. Uh, it's just impractical uh, to do it otherwise than the way we're doing it so far. Um, but there, there are very interesting things that arise at, at the stage when we're going to embody it. And I'll, I'll, I'll come to that uh, in a moment. 
I want to, again, sorry, this is a mouthful. How long have I been speaking for? Much too long. Well, um, well maybe before you go on to, to the next step, Mike, did you have any questions in, in here before he goes on? Or are you content to just hear the whole well, thing? I'm, I'm content. I, I have pl plenty of uh, questions and thoughts, but I'd, I'd love to hear the rest of this. And then okay. I'll okay. get down. Yeah. So Mike will be familiar with, uh, with some of these concepts, which sadly I don't have time to unpack all together. But the, the, this system, the basic, it's an active inference uh, agent. Uh, it is inferring its own state and it's inferring the state of its environment. Uh, it, in other words, it's making predictions about if I do this, that will, that's what will follow uh, to the extent that what it predicted will follow does not follow. To that extent, there's an error signal uh, and it updates its, its predictive model uh, accordingly. And so it's, it's, it's constantly um, uh, improving its model of itself in its world, uh, based entirely on its own experience uh, 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 it, with, with these three imperatives that it has to meet. Those are its three homeostats. Um, and the, it has increasing or decreasing confidence in its policies uh, on the basis of how well it goes about satisfying its needs. I say confidence, I'm using the word, I know it's an ambiguous word, I'm using the word in the statistical sense. Uh, in other words, it has, it attaches great or, greater or less precision uh, to, its, to its current policies. Um, this is a confidence in the statistical sense of the word, but I rather like the ambiguity of the term, like the ambiguity of the term beliefs. Uh, the system has beliefs, uh, the system makes decisions, uh, it, the system has needs, uh, all of these words are ambiguous, but I, but I, I think uh, appropriately so. Um, now, the uh, so the, so that, that's the basic thing that it's doing. Um, but it, there are various uh, complications. The, the the one is that um, it's not expedient uh, to only um, to, to 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 only function by trial and error. Uh, error is dangerous, banging into things is bad. Um, making mis bad judgment calls is bad for, for a system like this, because remember that basic affectivity, the, the valence, the goodness and badness is rooted in these needs, uh, which determine whether or not it's going to survive. And so uh, there's, there's a, a, an additional layer of functionality uh, which, which has to do not just with measuring its free energy. Sorry, I should pause here to say, Free energy, uh, Karen, uh, it, it, very simply speaking, is its average error. So uh, it, it, it's in the, the, the extent to which its model does not adequately predict, um, uh, it does not efficiently predict what it actually encounters. Um, the, the, uh, free energy is a, is a measure of that. So it's got to minimize its free energy. It's got to maximize it, the efficiency of its predictive model. Um, but that... Uh, so that's where the goodness and badness of it all, um, uh, it, it's rooted in the fact that increasing free energy just is bad from the point of view of the system, for the system. Um, but that free energy is factorized across these three categories. Um, and what's important about that is these are qualitatively distinctive categories. It's not just one continuous variable called free energy. So these needs... Um, are qualitatively distinctive from each other and must be treated so uh, 
uh, by by the agent, by, 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 by this artificial system that I'm speaking of. So it's registering how well it's doing across three different qualitative categories with all of which have existential consequences for it. Now, the thing I was going to come to next is that over and above this trial and error um, um, uh, way of, of going about meeting its needs, uh, it also has the capacity to calculate its expected free energy. In other words, to look ahead. If I were to do this, what will happen to my free energy? If I were to do that, what would happen? And so this is something like working memory. Uh, it has something of the same functional uh, capabilities as working memory or thinking, if you will, the thinking ahead. Um, thinking takes time. Uh, it's, it's, it doesn't have an, it, 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 all the time, of course, it's working against the clock because it's it's losing its it's losing its energy supplies. Uh, it's increasing its rest uh, uh, needs. Uh, so thinking takes time. So it also has to think about thinking, as it were. In other words, it has to make decisions about uh, at what how many time steps must I think ahead? Um, you know, at what point does it become inexpedient to do so? So it's got all of this functionality. Once it's learnt. Uh, how to survive in, in, the, in, in the environment, uh, then what we do is we change the environment um, so that it now, what used to apply, it doesn't apply anymore. So it's, 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 it's returned to a state of uncertainty. Um, and and I, I, again, remember the, the uncertainty, it's a crucial part of what I'm talking about. The, the, the confidence is determined by the affects, in other words, by how well or badly it's doing in relation to its needs, its confidence in its current policy is modulated. Uh, it's tethered to the affects, uh, but it's a matter of confidence in the policies uh, that it's executing in the service of meeting the demands uh, of these uh, homeostatic need systems. Um, so we change the environment, and then it's now back in a state of uncertainty. It has to learn once more, um, how to survive in this environment, and then we change it back again. And then the system gradually learns these are like seasons. It's not random changes, they're regularities. Um, and then lastly, we have a hill um, which, uh, which enables the system to disambiguate which, which season it's in. Uh, it's, it, it's, so so there, there's the, the, the um, uh, we spoke I said I'm not going to talk about our last discussion, but I will once more. Um, we, we spoke about opponent processes. This is this explore-exploit dichotomy. Um, sometimes going up onto the hill, which is an explore strategy, um, is better in, for its survival than exploiting. In other words, just, just going for, going for uh, where the resources are. Uh, so it has these. So it's got choices that it's making across, do I act, do I think? Um, do I explore? Do I exploit? Um, never knowing whether it's in season A or it's in season B. Uh, you know, not never knowing, but using the attacks. These are these are factors that it's got to that it's got to take into account um, in its in its ongoing uh, uh, what I would dare to call in its ongoing voluntary behavior. In other words, in its ongoing navigating an uncertain environment um, and making choices based in the value system, ultimately rooted in its, 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 its own survival needs. Um, so that's, that's where we are. That's what we've done. Um, the next step 
in, in talking in this conversation now, I'm going to pause. I'm just going to say where I would go next if I didn't pause was to, is to the, the crucial questions about how do we know um, when such a system, in fact, does have feelings. Uh, this is the single biggest problem that we face. Um, and uh, I've got various thoughts about that. Uh, none of them definitive, none of them um, entirely satisfactory. But I think that's, this is the function, this is the, the, the um, engineering of the, of the minimal functionality that, that we have inferred underlies uh, raw feelings. Remember, we're talking here about artificial forms of feelings um, for an artificial agent. Uh, but I think that it's reasonable to speak about the point of view of this agent. And it's reasonable to start speculating about what is it like to be this agent. Um, and that leads us to the problems that, that, uh, that I say I'm pausing before we get to. Well, um, <clears throat> I mean, uh, so, so I must say, um, You've you've checked off almost all of my boxes as far as the 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 kinds of things that I think are necessary to create such a thing, right? So so I think we're in complete agreement on the origin of all of this in homeostasis, the the the, the critical nature of choices and preferences, the need to self-organize and construct a boundary between yourself and the outside world, right? That's not given to you by somebody else, but you have to construct this this boundary, right? A active inference, the kind of um, the basic metacognition of asking, how are you doing, right? Your own, checking your own state and being um, being needy and vulnerable to damage and all of these things. I mean, this is like, I 100% um, agree with with all of that. Um, I guess uh, the two, two things I was thinking is, um, first of all, you know, this 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 question of uh, what, what you said, for example, about blood chemistry or other aspects of the body that go on, you know, non-consciously, right? So I think, I think that's interesting, and I think it impacts the second thing, which is, of course, the critical part of how do we know about these systems, which is that that view of these things being non-conscious are from a very particular perspective. That is from the perspective of you and me and the two sort of verbal consciousnesses that are having this, this discussion, right? From, from that perspective, of course, these things are, I have no idea what my liver is doing. I'm not conscious of it at all. But what I'm not at all sure of, in fact, I suspect this is uh, th that, that there is such a thing, is that these uh, processes go on with some level of consciousness in a, in a different self that exists within my organism that I, as, as you know, the, the one doing the talking now, have no access to. But that doesn't mean it isn't conscious, right? It's not conscious to me. It's not in my field of consciousness. But I think actually that uh, quite a number of the things that are going on in a body such as ours probably come with their own basic nonverbal kind of consciousness. We can't ask them for, for, for very reasons, obvious reasons, but we can gather some evidence that are similar to the evidence that we use to gauge each other's consciousness in terms of this, you know, problem of other minds and, and things like that. Um, and so I think it's, you know, I, I, I think that, uh, yeah, we are not a, I mean, so, 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 so this, this whole sort of construct has, has a, uh, some number, maybe a large number of different selves in it, uh, which all enjoy, which I think all enjoy some type of consciousness that we would find uh, very difficult to um, to imagine or or, or 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 speak about, and I think uh, that relates to this to this question which you had just uh, sort of started on, which is okay. So so you've created this thing; it has all of the um, uh, all of the uh, kind of basic requirements, and so now the question is okay. So what criteria do we use now to know if the project has succeeded or, or not? Right. I think this is this is really critical, and. For me, I've come to the to the conclusion that, 
as as we think about competencies and spaces other than three-dimensional space, right? So we're very used to gauging, you know, how do we solve the problem of other minds? Well, you look around and you, and I see you, or I see a, some, you know, some, some very clever animal or something like this behaving in three-dimensional space. And I say, okay, that's good enough for me to infer all kinds of attribute, all kinds of things on a practical level, attribute feelings and preferences and, and some, you know, they have a theory of mind about it. And I, I've, I think I've come to a position where looking at competencies in other spaces that are not three-dimensional space, so for example, physiological state space, right, anatomical state space, transcriptional state space, other, other problem spaces, I see no reason, even though we are very bad at, at, uh, at, at having a theory of mind in those spaces, we're good with three-dimensional medium objects, medium-sized objects moving at medium speeds in sort of 3D space. We're very good at that for evolutionary reasons. Really not very good, I think, at recognizing this in other, uh, other spaces. And I don't see any reason why all of these uh, systems that have various competencies in those spaces might not have equally, va um, equally valid consciousness in those spaces. And so... I guess I guess I'll just I'll just end here and ask you because I think here's where the two things kind of come together is in your system before you make the physical system right so so in your virtual simulated world where your system matches all of these criteria at that point do you think that whatever level of consciousness it has is uh, sort of as real whatever that is right but but as valid as the kind of consciousness that other cre uh, that physical creatures exist uh, exhibit in in um, in, in three dimensional space, right? So so people, I mean, this is this is something that you know science fiction authors and and computer scientists have been discussing for for a really long time, right? If you if you live in a virtual world and you're a virtual creature, is your is your do, can you have a consciousness that has the same philosophical status as 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 our consciousness? So what what is your take on that? Do you think this is as real as it gets or no? Uh, the short answer is yes, and now let me unpack uh, a bit of it. Um, I uh, absolutely accept your earlier statement um, about uh, component systems uh, within the, the system. Um, and uh, you spoke of selves, you know, uh, sort of component selves. Uh, I, I absolutely accept that. Um, as you know, because you are familiar with, with this whole way of thinking, uh, there isn't one mark of blanket. Um, right. You know, there are, there are blankets within blankets within blankets. Uh, the, the, the nervous system sort of provides a meta blanket, um, uh, the, but, but uh, it's regulating all these other component systems. Um, and my answer to uh, that is to the extent, remember where I, what my starting point was in terms of the transition from autonomic uh, uh, regulation of blood gases to, uh, to feeling suffocation alarm. Um, the, uh, the, the, the principle there uh, for me is to do with choice. Choice, the requirement for choice. In other words, the uncertainty uh, that the system has to uh, compute in relation to its policies. Uh, it's, and th this is something which I imagine in the most autonomically regulated systems, there will be minimal uncertainty. It doesn't mean there's none. There will be times when there's none. There might be moments of perturbation where uncertainty uh, uh, reappears. So I don't see it as a black and white dividing line. I think wherever that, wherever that fun the functionality I'm talking about, where the system or subsystem uh, has to now navigate uncertainty and make choices, uh, I, I'm saying that's what the mechanism 
of the affect is four. So wherever that we see that functionality, I'm, I'm willing to, to, to infer uh, affect. Mm -hmm. um, the word affect um, speaks to your next question in one way. There, there, there are two ways in which I'd like to address your, your main question about three-dimensionality. Um, the, the monitoring of blood gases is not a three-dimensional spatial business. Um, and the same applies with our artificial agent. It's monitoring how am I doing it, for example, in relation to my energy needs. This is not about space. It's navigating a space in order to, uh, it, it's, it's having to exist within a three-dimensional uh, spatial uh, world. Um, but, but what it's doing there is fundamentally driven by its monitoring of its own state. Uh, it's a measurement of its own state in a, a, in a qualitative dimension. Um, so for me, uh, this goes to what I said at the beginning about our starting with visual consciousness as our model example. I think that's starting with this kind of representational cognitive consciousness. I think we should have started with something that has to do with the measurement of a state, something much more basic. But mm -hmm. I think that the other way in which you're asking the question about virtual versus real uh, uh, agents, uh, that's a terribly important question. And, uh, for, uh, and I, I'm afraid, uh, I, I suspect I, or dare I say we, will lose the sympathy of many of our viewers and listeners uh, when I say what I'm going to say now, uh, which is that I think it doesn't make one jot of difference, uh, whether it's an embodied agent uh, or it's a virtual agent, because yeah. this is the whole, this is what functionalism is all about. It's not about the substrate, it's about the mechanism. It's about yeah. what, so the computations that this agent is performing are every bit as real uh, if it's embodied uh, as if it's not embodied. And, I, and, and uh, it, so the mechanism I'm talking about, the mechanism that, that causally generates uh, you know, a feeling like something, uh, I think is perfectly uh, possible in an entirely virtual agent. Um, so when I said at the beginning, we're doing it this way first, later we will embody it, I have to confess I mean, we, I am interested in embodiment and I'm interested in what new problems arise for the agent. I think that we need to take an empirical approach to that. Um, but, but in principle, uh, I, 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 the, the real reason why I feel we need to do that is because of prejudice, yeah. because uh, the people who are going to have to uh, uh, judge uh, whether we have succeeded in our project or not, uh, you know, we're going to have three strokes against us if it's not a physically embodied, embodied agent. And that's the main reason, uh, what, yep. frankly speaking, uh, that, that I want to embody it. Um, and so, you I, know, that I, leads I need, to, I need to ask a question here um, because when you, when you are talking about um, the, the blood gases getting to a place where it rises up into the consciousness, <clears throat> And you, when you talk about that, that need that arises, that we become conscious, we become conscious of the need, right? That need is being instigated by the anomaly of the, the environment in which our blood gases get out of balance. And when Mike talks about um, Picasso tadpoles, he's created an anomaly that the 
the tadpole moving into the frog state then has to adapt to that anomaly somehow. And it's in that adaptation. I think maybe when I'm hearing you, Mike, talk about these different levels where you can go down and find this aspect of consciousness, there has to be some some way in which those tadpoles, the cells within the tadpoles are navigating that problem that they're facing, that anomaly that you have injected into the system. When, when I, if I move into a, a gas-filled room or something like that, that gas in that room is an unusual environment. And you talk, Mark, about creating unusual environments for your, your entity, whatever that is, to um, navigate because that's part of the learning process, so to speak, that's part of the development. So um, how is it possible for this entity to face anomaly if it is not embodied, unless it's just anomaly that you're creating for it? You're artificially producing anomalies for it to interact with, but if it's not embodied, how is it going to face anomalies that aren't being artificially injected into the system? Does that make I, sense? I, yeah, I, I mean, in the case of in the in the in the case of morphogenesis, as you're talking about now, we have a system that lives in multiple worlds. It it, it is embodied in that you can go and put your put your finger on the cells and mm -hmm. where the eyes are and so on. But, but I think in a much more important sense, what it's doing is it's navigating morphospace, space, which is this, this virtual space of possible configurations of the face. And what we've done in that space, in the case of the frog, what we've done is we've, we've moved the physical configuration, but we have not touched the encoding of the correct state, the set point, mm -hmm. which is how the system knows that it's in the wrong state. And I mean, I think Mark laid out all the right uh, steps that, um, that exactly is what it does. It's constantly monitoring itself against the set point. And, and in fact, we, are, we, have a, we have a project where we literally look at the stress that goes up when the delta is is too high so the so the current state doesn't match the desired state the stress of the system goes up and so it absolutely knows where it is in morphospace space and if it's in the right place or the wrong place we have other systems where we've done the opposite where we don't touch the cells what we do is we change the set point and then the cells sure enough will go and reconfigure themselves in a something you would you know you, an observer might call a defect but actually the cells are doing exactly what they're supposed to they're building a completely different thing because we've rewritten the set point that they're using to gauge where they're supposed to go so i i'm i'm i i'm in full agreement with mark i think that that space is as good that 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 morpha space is as good as virtual space in terms of once you have an agent in there that's sophisticated enough to not only uh homeostatically solve the problem but have a, a second order monitoring mechanism where it's actually um have the, has, has a degree of metacognition about how well it's doing and what should we do and all of that uh, I think that's as good. I mean, to me, and I know what you mean. I think, yeah, we'll we'll lose some people here, but I think, but I think absolutely, uh, that's that's as good. That's absolutely as good. The, the one way of trying to re win, regain those people that we might have lost, um, is to remind us all that uh, we have a, the, the reality that we are interacting with uh, is our own representation of that reality. Um, yeah. So, you know, this physical space that we're speaking about is our own um, generative models representation of that space and likewise of our own internal bodily states. Um, we, the, these are nerve impulses which are representing uh, those states to us. 
So, you know, what actually lies behind the blanket is completely, it doesn't really, it doesn't really register for the system. It's, the system is only registering its representation of a reality that it has faith, if I may say, that it has faith that there is some real reality beyond its representation of it, that it's not just living in a dream. But uh, ironically, the phenomenal reality, the phenomenological reality uh, for the system, the most real thing, uh, as it were, um, is the stress that Mike was just speaking about. What the system is registering is stress um, about these other things which it's representing, which, are the, which it's inferring are the causes of this affective state that it's in. The affective state is the, is the, the you know, it's a kind of turn up for the books that the affective state, the thing that the behaviorists told us was a fiction, uh, the affective state is, I think, uh, as it were, empirically from the viewpoint of the system, the most real thing. Uh, mm. It is, it is, the, it is the, the, the lived or at least experienced reality of the system. Yeah. Um, no, please. Please go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I just I, I was going to uh, bounce uh, bounce an idea off off of you and see see what you thought. I was um, I've I've been thinking about exactly these same issues. You know, these kind of basic uh, basic elements that have to be there. And one one thing that I recently started thinking about is this notion that okay, so so we start off with basic homeostasis. So you have this thermostat that resists changes in the environment, right? And it uh, does what it can to keep the environment constant via the cooling and the heating. But one thing it doesn't do is resist your attempts to change the set point. So in other words, at that level of existence, whatever the set point is, it's just going to do it. It offers no resistance to that. But in biology, organisms like that don't survive long because they will be exploited by cheaters and parasites and everything else. And so, so that means that uh, evolution should be favoring the emergence of agents that not only uh, have, a, have a set point and work towards it, but actually are monitoring that set point to see whether it's being altered or not. Now that leads to an interesting thing. And it's the distinction, and I can't recall if we talked about this last time or not, but it's the distinction between learning and being trained. The question is, can you tell who's on the on the other side of this of of, of whatever is happening to you at the moment, right? So 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 if 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 you're a cell and your um uh, a bioelectric state has been has been changed, can you in fact determine whether yes, it's been changed because you're the one who changed it because you want to be in another state for whatever reason, or was it changed because a parasite or a backpropagation training process or some engineer or somebody or, or a neighboring cell or that's trying to make you be part of a different tissue or, or, or cancer cell or whatever, somebody else changed it for you. So that seems to be evolutionarily, it seems that there should be a lot of pressure to get good at determining that sort of thing, which requires then a lot of metacognitive monitoring and a clear boundary and a clear definition of which are the things that I'm going to consider okay because they come from inside, whatever that is defined as, versus which are the things that I consider an attack as some sort of hack, you know, a, so some something that may or may not have my best interests in heart at heart because because there's another agent on the other side of it. They have a different agenda, maybe, right? So I think so. I think that that simple dynamic. It seems to me that that simple dynamic sets up a real pressure to get very good at establishing that boundary that you talked about between the self and the outside world. And in particular, monitoring all of this, all of the events that go on to try to determine their origin or, or, you know, which, so, so that in turn, taking it one step further, that is the basis of trying to identify 
the agency of various things that happened. Is it is it the dumb mechanical universe that's causing this, or is there a, a level of agency out there that's messing with me that I need to resist or overcome or something? So that if that's present all the way at the beginning, one can easily sort of see how that would scale up in complexity and give rise to all of these kind of complex things that 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 we enjoy, where we where we we like to tell stories of responsibility and individuals doing things themselves, having perduring properties uh, and and ownership of of goals and memories and everything else. It it seems to me that all of this boils down to this very simple uh, uh, survival need of resisting changes to your set point right in a kind of competitive in a competitive world does that any of this sound sound reasonable yes uh it, it all sounds reasonable it's the uh, to start at the the most basic level uh, which is not quite uh, what, where where you're taking us but i think it needs to be said first um of course learning uh, doesn't have to take place ontogenetically there is also a learning uh, a, a bi-natural selection mm -hmm. um, and so uh, that's pr probably how it starts and for a very long time it's probably the only way that such learning of, in terms of the you know what is the ideal set point um, uh, uh, and uh, that's probably how it happens for eons of time but of course as soon as the agent has its has the capacity to make choices distinctions inferences about this during its own lifetime uh, then you have an, a, a massively increased uh, adaptive advantage. So I, I'm quite happy uh, to agree with you that, you know, it probably goes a very long way down, uh, that capacity. Um, I think that um, what you're also touching on is a very um, crucial aspect missing from the uh, system that we currently are working on. Uh, and that is that it's, uh, it's, it's a hermit. You know, there's only one of them. Um, yeah. uh, and uh, so one of the things that we know we need to do in fairly short order uh, is introduce it, uh, introduce other agents, uh, conspecifics um, and, and others um, uh, into the same environment so that it starts having to um, uh, uh, infer other, other agents um, and modeling the models um, of other agents in order to make the kinds of inferences that you're talking about with all of their with all of their adaptive advantages and i think that that's uh it's biologically a highly implausible situation the one we have at the moment uh an agent that's that's that, that is the only uh, the only the only game in town um it's, it's so it's not it's not really having to infer uh, learn how to infer um the the um the sorts of things that you're talking about um, so that that is that is that is one of the places we're going. I think that before we run out of time, let's spend a little bit of time talking about this problem of other minds. Um, you know, the how do you judge? How do you know when you've when you've succeeded uh, in engineering an artificial consciousness? Um, the how do we normally how do we normally deal with the problem of other minds? Uh, the only way we can deal with it is uh, inferential, you know, we, I can never observe Mike Levin's consciousness, so I can't know uh, that he, that, that it feels like anything to be him. Um, but I'm, I, I'm, I'm pretty confident in my inference that it, that he feels pretty much the same as I feel to myself. Um, and so that's, we have to remember that's our starting point. There's no way 
that you can uh, directly observe the conscious states of any other agent, including other human beings, you know, let alone uh, 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 non-human uh, creatures and organisms and uh, uh, let alone artificial uh, systems. So this is why I start with the, the precise definition of what I think the functional mechanism is, you know, that wherever I see evidence of that functional mechanism operating, that's one reason for me to be confident that it feels like something to be the system. You know, and I think that we're up against an enormous amount of prejudice when it comes to that sort of thing. So uh, one of the ways in which, um, uh, I mean, the, 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 only, the only sort of truly empirical, uh, uh, when I say empirical, I mean, that's not the right word, truly objective, um, is something like the Turing test, you know, that we have to have judges uh, who see this thing behaving um, and have to make, uh, they have to do what I've just said, all that we can do is, you know, I'm a judge who's currently judging that Mike Levin is conscious. Uh, so we need to, that, that's a Turing test, uh, you know, and, and, and we need to minimize the prejudice, which is why Turing uh, developed the test in the way that he did, that you don't get to see um, who the agent is that you're interacting with. So um, the, 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 the virtual agent that we currently have one of the advantages of using a virtual agent is we can come up with all sorts of graphics uh, where we can embody this agent in all sorts of bodies, which may be more or less um, you know, a, 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 a persuasive. It would be interesting to see to what extent does the judge uh, attribute consciousness to the agent just on the basis of what it looks like. Uh, if it looks human, if it looks biological, uh, if it looks non-biological but robot-like, as opposed to if it looks like just a cipher, you know, um, at, at, to how much of our of our willingness to attribute feelings uh, to, to the agent uh, is is determined simply by that. The most, you know, when I speak to my my colleagues, my neuroscientific colleagues, um, about this problem of other minds and how we get around it, you know, I'm constantly astonished by the how many of them. Uh, hang their hat on reportability. They say, you know, I, I'm, if you can't report that you're conscious, uh, there's no empirical criterion. And therefore, even those children I spoke of, those hydranencephalic children who are so emotionally responsive, uh, they say, I don't know if they're conscious because why? Because they can't tell me they are, you know? And, and so just to show how, how flimsy a criterion reportability is, um, imagine if what we did with our agent is all that it has to do, you know, is is have a little have a little ticker tape which says I am I am uh, uh, running out of energy supplies. I feel bad about that. I am getting tired. You know, it's it's meaningless. It would be the least persuasive uh, piece of evidence uh, as to what's going on. I would be much more persuaded by what it does. You know, what kinds of problems it's able to solve. Uh, and 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 fund, uh, centrally, you know, to what extent it's able to navigate uncertainty, able to make uh, decisions which save its bacon um, in situations that it's never been in before. So yes. um, ultimately, we are going to rely on that. But there's some interesting um, things which I would just like to throw throw out. I'll just mention one of them. There are many that we don't have time, uh, but I'll just mention one of them to see what you think of this, Mike. You know, the, the experiment with zebrafish, um, so I guess you call them the zebrafish, 
um, the, 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 with the hedonic uh, condition place preference behavior that the, the fish hang out on this side of the tank because that's where the food is until you put cocaine or nicotine uh, or amphetamine um, or, or morphine on that side of the tank. Uh, then they hang out there. Uh, so it's, it's a hedonic condition place preference behavior there. Why would the fish go there? Uh, it, it's not good for the fish. It, it feels good, but it's not nutritional. In fact, it's, it's, it's actually harmful, those substances. So we're trying to come up with something like that for our agent, where we can, where we can show something like hedonic place prep, something that suggests that what's motivating the agent now is only a feeling. Uh, mm. it is, it is, it, it, in, fact, in fact, it's something like, um, something like neurotic behavior. In other words, it's doing something that's not in its own best interest uh, yeah. uh, uh, on the basis of feeling states alone. What do you think of that? Would that be a, a, a convincing uh, criterion for you? I mean, I, I think it's very interesting. For, for, for me, that works. In fact, we've done similar things in development where we've exposed uh, developing and regenerating animals to things like SSRIs, other anxiolytics. And, and sure enough, I mean, the, the, uh, the, the morphogenetic agent is uh, quite capable of either hallucinating in morphospace or hanging out in regions of morphospace that it normally would never go to because we've short-circuited this reward machinery. Either either the motivation is gone or the stress is so low that it doesn't care anymore. And so the, the, the anatomy just basically goes, goes all to heck. I mean, that, that absolutely works. And I, you know, I think that's a, that's a very reasonable... I mean, I think much like, much like many things of interest in this area, if somebody wanted to be a sort of micro reductionist about these things, I think somebody could say, well, what we've done in both of these cases is hijack the, the, the metacognitive machinery such that, you know, what the drug basically does is it fools it into thinking that the things are good because it hijacks this like self-monitoring thing, right? So, I mean, that's, I, I'm not worried about it. That's one can take that view of, of you know, kind of that, that reductionist view of, of, of anything, but I think fundamentally, yeah, fundamentally, it is about the motivations of the agent and what are the different, what are the different ways to manipulate it and that that tell you something about the the, the you know to improve your theory of mind, basically. Yeah, yeah, I think I think it's very reasonable. Well, I know Great. that you both have a hard stop at ten, so I'm just going to throw out one last question for you both to think about, and then if you think it would be an interesting thing to talk about, you can let me know later. And that is, um, Mark, you said that you're creating an agent that has no other purpose except to continue existing. So my biggest question about the, the beginning of life or the beginning of consciousness is where does that desire to exist come from? So I'll just throw that out in the air. And yeah, that's and a small, that's a, that's a small question. And yeah. I'm sure we, I'm sure we could, we could uh, get that answered in the last 30 seconds. Yeah. That's so the, the, thank you uh, so much. It. Thank you no, so much for that joining me. It was an interesting conversation, Mike. And I, there's, there's, there's nobody uh, th that, I, that, that I could expect uh, to have a more worthwhile discussion of this topic Likewise. with than you. And it's it certainly proved to be the case. My Likewise. expectations Likewise. were fulfilled. Thank you so yeah, much. And thank you for facilitating it, Karen. Yeah, yeah. Thank well, you, I'm Karen. just really yeah, excited fantastic. that you could get together. Thank you so much. Have a great day. All right. See you thank soon. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Cheers.